0: Can everybody hear me okay? Very good, very good. Tell you what I'm gonna do something I don't normally do. I'm gonna take my jacket off uh because the air conditioning's not keeping up, so uh must be all the heat from you guys yeah. but uh we will get it figured out well, good morning, steadfasters uh we're glad to have you here. uh I can remember when uh we started the plan moving over here and we said how many people you think we'll get here and uh 20 maybe 25 30 well we're already up to uh, over 50 and uh, so i asked the staff i said what's plan b (laughs) uh where are we going to go we're not going to meet in the parking lot so where where are we going to go so they're they're working on plan b c and d Uh, But we don't have a plan yet, but for right now, I think we're comfortable in here. I think everybody can find a seat. Uh, So, uh, it's been good so far, and I'm excited to bring to you God's Word. So if you're not already there, open up to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to start with verse 18. But before we get started there, let me kind of give you an idea of where we're going this morning. This morning we're going to discuss in somewhat great detail an emotion that we all have, an emotion that we all exhibit at some time in our lives, sometime too often in our lives, And it's to the disappointment of God. It's called hatred. And so our our message today is somewhat of a bummer. uh, And I don't want us to get too far down into the depression track here with the message. And at the end, I'm going to bring us back up and give us some real hope here. But I can't ignore what's in the text. And what's in the text is a story literally of hatred. Just think about that for a minute. A single word that has a manifold expression. You know we see hatred in many forms and in many places. It's defined as extreme dislike or disgust or prejudiced hostility or animosity, a feeling so strong, and here's where it gets serious, a feeling so strong that it demands action, if you understand what I'm trying to say. The hatred in the person builds up to the point that they act upon it. Its synonyms are abhorrence, detestation, loathing, revulsion, contempt, It's not a nice word when you think about it. And in our world today, we coexist with it. There's hatred all over this world, and it's often made excuses for. One commentator said this about hatred in America today, and I quote, How has our country tolerated hatred toward others? Well." We laugh at the crude put-downs, and we call it comedy. We treat others rudely with insensitivity to their perspective, and we call it debate. We destroy other people's property in the streets, and we call it justifiable anger. We demonize our opponents, and we call it free speech. We gossip, and we slander others, and we call it news. We attack people of faith in the most vicious ways, and we call it liberation. We kill babies, and we call it choice. Well, this morning, we're going to read of a family just literally filled with hate for one of their own family members. And we're also going to discuss how hatred leads to terrible results. So let's get right into our passage and let's talk about what number one on your outline should be the setting. I think it would be appropriate that we set the scene here as we get into this tragic situation of Joseph being sold. If you remember back from Gary's message last week, we learned that Joseph had been sent out on a mission by his father Jacob. So skip back a few verses to Genesis 37, 14, and read along with me. It says this, starting in verse 14, Then he said to him, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph, then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now slip down to Genesis thirty-seven seventeen, Because jo- Joseph had gone to Shechem looking for him, and he could not find him there. So he asked someone there, and the man said, in verse 17, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So that's kind of where the setting is and gets us ready for the next uh, few verses. So now we look at a, a trek that Joseph uh, took to find his brothers And what you'll see is he starts at Shechem here on the map, and then he goes up, excuse me, he starts at Hebron, and he goes up to Shechem. He doesn't find them there, and so he goes even further up uh, to Dothan. All right? It's just a, a good trek that he goes on. This would have taken Joseph about five days to go from Hebron to Shechem. It covers about 50 miles from the valley there in in Hebron to Shechem. And then it would take another couple of days to go the extra 15 miles up to Dothan. Now we're not sure, this the text doesn't tell us, so we're not sure if if Joseph was walking or he's riding a donkey or a camel. But regardless, folks, this was no trip to your local Walmart. This was not a go around the corner here to the local pharmacy. This was quite an effort. This would have been a serious effort by Joseph to get there. But just why would the sons of Jacob take their flock to that area, that there were people in that area who were hostile to them? Remember Shechem? And Gary mentioned it in his message. Remember, they had the 12 sons have a sister who's named Dinah. You remember that? That happens earlier in Genesis. And Dinah is raped by a man named Shechem who lived in Shechem. Okay? And so, because of that, the brothers took great offense to it. They found out that their father took offense to it, but didn't do anything about it. And so the brothers took the law, so to speak, into their own hands. And they wipe out this whole village. So the people in the surrounding area are not good friends with these brothers. So why do they take them, why do they take their flock back to Shechem? Because they had to move. Remember Joseph said, you have caused me... Great pain, and now these people hate me because of what you've done, and we're going to have to move. And so they did move. They moved down to Bethel, and then they eventually ended up down uh, where they are in the valley of Hebron. So anyway, you wonder why they would take their flock back up there. Folks, it's because the land in that region is exceptionally lush pasture land. And if you look at that topographical map, you can see that green area is where there's a lot of pastures. And let's see, I think maybe I have uh, another... Well, that's just a picture of what one of them would have looked like. But I honestly believe that as they went there, this is one of the reasons that Jacob was so mad at his sons when they murdered all these people. It says in Genesis thirty-four thirty, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, now Simeon and Levi were the two brothers that instituted this murder, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men... Being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. So it caused Jacob to have to leave, as we talked about, but he really didn't want to leave because of that pasture land. So the reason the brothers have moved from Shechem to Dothan is probably for safety reasons. They got up to Shechem, realized the people were not friendly to them, And they decided it's probably best for us to continue to move the flock onward. So they go up. Now the scriptures don't reveal the exact uh, reason they went to Dothan. But they are there and the scene there is set for this kind of tragic transaction of this sale of Joseph. So let's now read back in uh, 37 starting in verse 18 and we're going to see how this all unfolds. And as I mentioned in my introduction, we're going to be discussing how hatred produces sinful responses. And right here in this passage is where hatred rears its ugly head about Joseph. We're going to see that the brothers show three separate areas of Joseph's life that they just truly hated. The first one is hatred for Joseph's character. Reading verses 18 to 20. When they, being the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. So they've got a plot there. You know, it's interesting. They see their brother coming. There's no fanfare when Joseph approached. They didn't feel the need to kill a lamb to welcome him. They didn't ask him how his trip went, or did he have any trouble finding them. They didn't ask about their father. They didn't ask about the homestead. How were people doing? All his presence does for them is just fuel their anger. It's just pouring gasoline on a fire. They already hate the guy. And just the presence of him, creates more and more hatred. They hated this young teenager with a passion simply for who he was. They hated so many things about his character. He was arrogant. He was childish. He was self-centered. He was boastful. And I'm sure just the sound of his voice was like the sound of fingernails running across a chalkboard. It just irritated them to even think about being in this guy's presence. And you say, well, Jeff, he's, he's only 17. he He's just a young, brash teenager, and he, and he'll grow out of this silliness. Well, folks, I'm going to give you a history lesson here. That excuse may work today with coddling helicopter parenting society that we live in which spoils and pampers and overprotects children today sadly parents today are so child centered that they they're embarrassed finally realizing that their kid is not a productive member of society but instead he's living in their basement trying to find himself while he gorges himself on pizza and plays video games. Now, you know, that may sound harsh, and I don't mean it to be offensive to anybody, but our society has gotten that way. I know when I grew up, the the generation I grew up in, my father told me one time, he said, I'm going to make a man out of you if it kills you. (laughs) And that's the way I was raised. I don't know if you realize it or not, but during biblical times, children were expected to mature quickly so that they could be responsible, dependable, and helpful family members. Marriages took place very early in those days, and it takes a really responsible adult-minded person to handle the responsibilities of a marriage. I think those of you who are married would agree with that. To provide a living for and manage a family while living in a cold and a cruel and a godless world. I can remember when my youngest son Joshua got married, many, it's been back in 2012, I guess. And I asked him about a year into his marriage, I said, Josh, what do you, how do you like being married? He said, Dad, I love being married. He said, I hate being an adult. (laughs) And I said, Welcome to the real world. According to Jewish law and the customs of the day, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, probably would have been very young when they married. In their early teen years. Folks, think about it. Jesus was born to a young teenager. Not a 30-year-old woman. And they had to grow up real quickly during those times. One commentator wrote this, Girls were usually engaged sometime between the age of 12 and 15. And they would have been married sometime at 15 or 16, and the boys would have been around 18 or 19. So when Joseph, who is 17, is still not working in the fields, but is rather back home with Daddy, being handed life on a silver platter. The brothers had absolutely zero respect for this guy. And it just made them even more angry, thinking about how the father was just lavishing life on Joseph. Hatred for their own family member is taking a deep, deep hold in their souls. Folks, let me me give you another example in the Bible where this happens. This happens later with King David's family. A man after God's own heart was one of the most underperforming parents who was afraid to discipline his own children. And his own son, Absalom, hated him so bad that he revolted against him. So it's not just this one time. It happens time and time again in the Scriptures where you see people who do not parent their children well end up with the results of what happens there. You know, that's a sermon for another time. and if. If you get the opportunity to go back to listen to our, when we were going through the life of David, you'll hear that come out. Understand this, folks, and I'm serious about this. Satan would like nothing better to split your family into shreds. And he will use whatever way he can to do it. Brother against brother, sister against sister, brother against sister. He just wants to rip you apart. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan would rip you apart if God didn't have his present hand holding him back. Don't think for a minute that Satan is not looking for a way to devour you and your family Satan uses favoritism, he uses jealousy, and he uses hatred as tools to ruin relationships, to destroy families, and to divide churches. Joseph's brothers hated his character. Secondly, the brothers had hatred for Joseph's coat. You know, I think of all the things that fed their hatred, this coat was the primary thing. It was an outward expression of their father's extreme favoritism toward Joseph. And their realization, this is what they're thinking in their heart, this is their realization by seeing that coat that their father, that they were born to, just like Joseph was, had little regard for them. It might as well have been a flashing neon billboard saying Jacob's favorite son. That's what that coat did every time they saw it. It was just a constant reminder of how much he loved Joseph and they were second-class citizens. And not only did he realize did they realize that Jacob did not care for them it was a glaring expression of his disfavor for their own mothers You have to realize that Leah and Bilhah and Zilpha were truly second class wives in this family Rachel was the only one that mattered to Jacob And that was what was made very obvious by the way that he handled his family. Jacob didn't even try to hide it. So sad to see someone so consumed with favoritism. And seeing Joseph coming across that pasture, he's probably on uh, on his daddy's best donkey. Flaunting that opulent coat in their faces. It was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. It just filled their hearts with disappointment and disgust and a rare breed type of hatred. A type of hatred that can lead to disastrous results. Yes, the brothers hated Joseph for his character and his coat. And the third thing was for his condensation, condescension. As we learned last week in Gary's lesson, Joseph detailed to his brothers and his father dreams that he had experienced. Now please understand, these dreams were actually from God and they were for a purpose. God orchestrated it this way so that when the things that the dreams spoke of actually transpired, many decades later, when these dreams come to pass many decades later, the brothers and the father would realize that the prophecy of those dreams were truly meant to be. But what rubbed hatred in their noses the most was Joseph's condescending presentation of these dreams. Joseph, when he tells them, appears very excited about it. He's probably pretty animated in the telling of it. He makes no apologies for how the dreams come across. You know, it reminds me of my grandchildren presenting to me their latest gift or toy or the little shoes that light up, you know. They prance around with it. They, they're quite the spectacle of showing it off, you know how kids can use that nanny-nanny-boo-boo approach to, I got something you don't have. And they just kind of shove it in your face. Well, when it's a grandkid, that's okay. All right? I'll let them be. For the brothers, it was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. But you know, for Jacob, As it is recorded in verse 11 of 37, verse 11 of 37 reads this. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind, in his heart. You know, he, Jacob goes, hmm, interesting. None of the brothers, apart from Joseph, had ever had an encounter with God. But for Jacob, who has encountered his God up close and personal more than once, this prophecy of the dreams seemed eerily similar to the way God would foretell something to someone. Jacob was simply surprised when Joseph presented this dream. Jacob simply was surprised that since these dreams directly affected his entire family, Jacob's probably thinking, God, why didn't you give me this dream? Why did you give it to him? Well, between the childlike character, the bling-bling coat, and Joseph's condescending manner in dealing with them, the brothers have had enough. And so they say, let's kill him. I've I've had it up to here with this guy. Let's just kill him. We'll figure something out to tell Dad, but we'll just kill him. We'll simply beat the life out of him. We're going to rip that cursed coat off of him, and then we'll tell Dad that a wild animal devoured him. And to hide the body, we'll pitch it into a deep pit that no one would dare explore. And this would honestly resolve more than one issue for them. First, there would be no more Joseph reminding them of how lowly their rank was with their father. They don't have to put up with him anymore. Second, there would be no more bad reports coming back from Joseph where he's tattling on them, getting them in trouble with their dad. And thirdly, maybe their father Jacob would restore some of his love toward them since Joseph's side of the picture. So, you know, you can think of a lot of things that they would think through that said, this is a win-win. This is probably not a bad idea. This is a win-win. So the hatred is built up in the brothers' souls, and it overtakes their common sense. It overtakes their ability to think clearly that their plan is ready to be carried out. And so all they can think about is killing. We'll just kill this dreamer and get him out of our life. But there's one who has other thoughts about this situation. So let's read about the scheme. We're going to read verses uh, 21 through 25 here. But I'm just going to read 21 to begin with. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said let's not take his life now let's talk about Reuben for a minute Reuben is Jacob's firstborn son his mother is Leah in the scriptures birthright usually refers to the right <clears throat> to the uh, refers to the rights of the son born first in a family to inherit the family's possessions, and to inherit the family's authority. The firstborn son, when the father dies, has authority over the family. Okay, In ancient Israel, for example, all the sons received some of their father's property upon his death, but the firstborn received a double portion and became the leader of the family. So Reuben is the one who is due the family blessing and the double portion here. And it is Reuben who steps into this whirlwind of destruction to offer a different solution to the problem of Joseph. And we see that hatred produces conspiracy. Reading verse 22, it says, Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And then it gives us an explanation of why Reuben wanted to do that. It goes on to say that he, Reuben, might rescue him, Joseph, out of their hands to restore Joseph to his father. And you go, why would Reuben want to do that? Well, the answer is in Reuben's past. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, which comes with blessing, honor, authority, and double portions. But he had lost all of that as a result of his sexual intimacy. And you can read about it in Genesis 35 with one of his father's wives, Bilhah. And Jacob had learned of it as well, the scriptures tell us. Folks, this is not only an act of incest, it's an act of defiance against a father that Reuben had little respect for. This is the mother of Dan and Naphtali, two of Reuben's brothers. Talk about an awkward situation Reuben is working every day in the fields, right alongside two of his brothers whose mother he had defiled. I'm thinking they're probably not the closest of friends in the family. But that is what hatred, when it is unified, does. It brings together birds of a completely different feather. And focuses on the anger that they have. You know, folks, when gangs run rampant across a city, destroying people and property, is when you have people who have no real interest in doing that, but they have some issue with society. So at that point, they decide to take their revenge as well. They're thinking that within the safe confines of a large crowd... No one can really pinpoint the exact damage that a single individual could do. So they're thinking, I'm pretty safe. I'm just going to join this mob mentality, and we're going to just start destroying things. You remember January 6th of 2021, when a hatred-fueled crowd rushed the Capitol building? I'm suspecting that... Those individuals climbing those walls, entering prohibited spaces, and destroying property along the way, they didn't count the cost that their actions might have in store for them if they were caught. They thought, I'm pretty safe in the midst of a big crowd. Folks, hatred for something or someone suppresses common sense. And those people were overcome with a gang mentality, and for a few hours of excitement and euphoria, many lives have been destroyed by their foolish actions. In fact, there are many of those who have expressed great, great remorse and regret for what they did, yet their actions demanded accountability, and this day some of them are sitting in federal prisons. Reuben thought he was paying his, in his opinion, his spineless father back for his favoritism and for his lack of action in the case of his sister's rape. Reuben had let his hatred cause him to commit an act that he deeply regrets. And so Reuben plots a conspiracy to save Joseph and take him back to his father, In hopes of reconciling with Jacob. And maybe even receiving back his firstborn son status. Maybe Jacob will do that for me if I bring him back his precious Joseph. But will it go as Reuben plans? Let's see. Hatred not only produces conspiracies, it produces conflict starting in verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varied colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, A caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring those down to Egypt. Read that verse 23 again slowly, when Joseph reached his brothers. Folks see what hatred produces? There were no pleasantries then when he got there. There were no handshakes. It was just violence. They manhandled this kid. They stripped the coat off of him as quickly as they can. In fact, they probably spit on that coat. They probably stomped on that coat to show a visible sign of their hatred for what what it represented. Next, Joseph is physically restrained. Then he's thrown into a pit. Now, a pit at that time or a cistern in those days would probably have been about 20 feet deep and inescapable, unless there was help. Since we also see in verse 24, it states there was no water in it. If left down there, Joseph would have died of thirst in a few short days. The brothers were so filled with hatred for Joseph, they didn't really care for him. They didn't care about his health. They didn't care about if he broke a bone when they threw him down in that pit. They didn't care about it. Hatred leads to actions that are very exaggerated in that action. You know, we read of criminal stories today where a person is stabbed 50 or 100 times. Or a person is already dead and the the murderer continues to shoot the dead body. Folks, that is uncontrolled anger emanating out from a pent-up hatred at that time. So these men, they're just seething with hatred for Joseph. And they exhibit it with conflict. But they also exhibit it with one other thing. Callousness. It says in verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. All sense of compassion, mercy, decorum, dignity. It's erased by the fury of hatred and it's replaced with a callousness that is almost just ungodly in nature. How can someone be that callous, you're thinking? They sit down to eat a meal while their little brother is probably writhing in pain from being assaulted by his older brothers. He has nothing to drink. He's lying in the bottom of a cold and damp pit, all while he can probably smell the lamb that the brothers are enjoying up there. Their laughter and their jovility throughout, he can, it just echoes throughout the pit. And he's thinking, how can they do? be enjoying themselves and laughing and eating a meal. As he agonizes, he's thinking, what's going to happen to me? He's beginning to grow up real quickly in that pit, folks, because daddy's protected him all this time, and now it's grow-up time. And he's beginning to wonder, what in the world is going to happen to me? If my own family will throw me in a pit and leave me there, Their minds are seared. They become completely hardened to the thoughts of compassion. You know, as, as hard as a hard calloused hand. I, I used to, when I was in, uh, a teenager, I worked at McDonald's. And I started out on the front and I got a promotion to French fries. And then I finally got back to the back where you could actually cook the meat and everything. And the old guy that trained me how to cook the meat, his hands were so like leather, he could take a piece of meat off of that 450-degree heat, pick it up, squeeze the, the grease out of it, and set it back down, and wipe his hand. I tried that. It didn't work. My hand was bandaged for about a week. But calluses just build up to the point that you feel no pain. Battle reports from various wars prove that men who have witnessed the most atrocious activities take place had little feelings of compassion, mercy, or even kindness. It was kill or be killed. And so they killed without even flinching. Folks, this is the type of callousness in normal daily life that does not occur overnight. It's not something that happens to where you become just one day you're kind and compassionate and the next day you're callous. It doesn't happen like that. This is something that hatred slowly steeps into your mind like a tea bag in a pot of water as it just steeps that water with a tea flavor. King David experienced this. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and in his callousness had her husband killed, and for nine months he never thought a thought about it. He just enjoyed the spoils of what he had. It took God's intervention to send Nathan to him to wake him up and tell him, You are the man. You're the one that did this. And then David. A man after God's own heart was broken. You want to read about it? Read in Psalms. The Romans so hated the Jews that they would soak them in oil, impale their bodies with a large pole, and light them a fire to provide light in the evening. You say, well, this just doesn't happen in civilized society. Let me take you back to the 1940's, six million Jews are exterminated, tricked into going into gas chambers, or shoved into another place where they would be killed. That's the product of hatred. Okay, we've talked about the setting, we've talked about the schemes, now let's talk about the sale. Verse 25 through 28. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked beyond, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, if you slip down to 36 of this chapter, verse 36, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of his bodyguard. Okay, here's where Joseph gets sold. Now comes the big moment that we've been building up to. As the brothers are enjoying a meal, who should appear but an alternative method for disposing of their pompous little brother? Who do you think sent that caravan? God did. At just the right time. Folks, this is all being orchestrated by something that they can't see. they see a caravan of traders. And this series of verses raises a couple of questions, like where did they come from and who exactly were they? Well, we know from verse 25 that the caravan was coming from Gilead. You can see it there on the map. And they're laden with aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and you could probably smell them coming from a mile away, and these items are used to make various perfumes and items for medicinal use. Guess what a combination of those makes today? Essential oils. (laughs) No, I'm not promoting it. I'm just letting you know that's what in essential oils is these kind of chemicals. And you say, uh, well, Jeff, before we go on, we need to address this Midianites, Ishmaelites confusion. Did they sum to the Midianites or the Ishmaelites? Which one was it? Okay, this one's pretty simple. What do we call people who live in the United States? Americans. But you're also a Texan. And if you live in certain cities, you're a New Yorker or whatever. What do you call people that live in the Middle East? They're Arabs. What do you call people that live in Southeast Asia? They're Asians. Okay, so the point is, Ishmaelites was the name for the people in that region. But the Midianites are the people that were from Midian. You can see that on the map. Midian was an area in present-day Saudi Arabia. So, that's how you reconcile that. These were truly, uh, I'll use for example, uh, the Arabs. These were truly Arabs, but they're from Jordan. Does that make sense? Okay. Or they're from Lebanon. Or they're from Syria. They're Arabs, but they're Syrians. Same thing here. These people are Ishmaelites, but they're from Midian. So they're Midianites. That's how it it, uh, resolves that. And guess what they specialized in, these Midianites. Now, God didn't bring a specific caravan here for nothing. These people had these aromatic gums and spices and all this stuff, but what they specialized in was slave trade. I thought that was very interesting when I found that out in my research. They specialized in buying slaves and selling slaves. And so when the guys tell them, hey, we got this young boy here who's pretty good health and uh, we'd like to sell him to you, they jumped right on this idea. And I think that God's plan is working because God's plan is to get Joseph down to Egypt and have him take care of the plan that he has established for him. But what I want you to see is to consider two different byproducts of hatred as we talk about the sale. The first one is just selfishness. Nothing quite overcomes a person's heart when they are met, immersed in an episode of hatred like the character trait of selfishness. They are not considering any other person's interests. The brothers' minds were completely focused on their desires. This little cartoonish looking thing, shows the brothers they're counting out the silver while Joseph is being taken away. The brothers were filling their stomachs while Joseph is starving. They're seeing dollar signs in their eyes as they contemplate selling him, and they're relishing in the satisfied feeling of one-upmanship on Joseph because they finally got him, and they're going to get rid of him. They simply thought that this commerce transaction was doing business for the betterment of each of the brothers. We're going to all come out of here with a little bit of change in our pocket here. And they th- they're probably thinking they could stand before God with no blood on their hands. Well, King David thought that as well, and it didn't quite work out for him. And it's not going to work out for these guys as, he, uh, as well. But guess who was not there when this sale takes place? Reuben. For whatever reason, we don't know, but Reuben's not there. And so when Judah offers this solution of selling young Joseph to these traders, Reuben's not there. And we're going to find out next week that Reuben's not happy at all when he comes back, looks in that pit, And Joseph's not there. So, we'll talk about that next week when Wes covers that. Secondly and lastly, I want to talk to you about hatred produces suffering. As Joseph heads down to Egypt, he leaves behind his brothers whose hatred leaves much suffering in their wake. When something tragic happens to someone, there are most likely many other people who are affected. Their families, maybe co-workers, fellow students, dearest friends. Life's trials do that enough already without the help of the acts of hatred. Senseless acts of violence done out of hatred. Maybe even, not even hatred for the person that was harmed. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we know how that happens. But hatred usually culminates in behaviors which produces acts that result in suffering. We know of many lives that suffered due to this selfish act of selling Joseph to the Midianites. First, Joseph was scared beyond belief. It's not written in our text uh, This morning, but I'm going to prove to you with another text here in just a minute. That he was scared. Secondly, Jacob is going to be literally stricken with grief to the point of almost death. When he finds out that Joseph, he thinks, because they deceive him, that Joseph is dead. So there's suffering there. And lastly, yes, even these brothers who perpetrated this act were later sufferers of their own action. Turn with me to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, and we'll look at verse 21. 42, 21. And this is in a story that later we will later cover in more detail. But 21 says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Talking about Joseph. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Stop there. They suffered as well. Because they honestly believed that Joseph at that time was going to kill them. You can see they suffered. Joseph suffered. Jacob suffered. Their suffering didn't take place until 22 years later. And yet it came back to haunt them. Joseph was greatly distressed. He pleaded with them for his life as they mistreated him. Can you imagine what he was looking like and feeling like as they handed him over to these Midianites who tied him up, threw him on the back of a camel in the middle of the night, and took him off to a place he'd never heard of? Amazing. They treated Joseph as if he were a piece of property or a sheep from the flock. And they didn't suffer at that time, but they rather relished the moment. But later God would heap upon their heads great suffering as a result of their hatred toward Joseph. You know, what a powerful story of what a hardened human heart can participate in. So let's finish by looking at an application to our lives. This is the route that they took back down to Egypt. You'll see that probably another couple of times as other teachers teach it through. So I won't spend any time there. But let's talk about our application. Folks, hatred is of the devil. And never a trait that we should emulate. The only thing you and I should hate is sin and Satan. We should never hate people who are not Christians, even if they hate us. And that's hard for the human heart to understand. We should never hate those that are not like us, whether it be in color, race, language, nationality, or socioeconomic status. Never should we hate those. We should always have a heart of compassion. Emulating Jesus in that regard. So often God's word records that Jesus felt compassion for others. Our Lord was so compassionate when people were suffering. Whether it be from hunger or physical ailments. Matthew 15, 32 reads this. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for for these people. Matthew 20:34 Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Mark 1:41 Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing be cleansed. Mark 6:34 When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart was filled with compassion. The only thing he hated is what you and I should hate, sin and Satan. Christians, love and compassion are to be the marks of our character. That should be what sets us apart from the world. were to display the gifts of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh. The gifts of the Spirit are all righteous in character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Of those things, there is no law against them in any nation, in any language. Did you see that in the brothers' actions today? No, you didn't. And that leads to our application this morning, which is to always exhibit the gifts of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Father, fill our hearts with the gifts of the Spirit, those things that cause us to love people, to love others, For those that are lost and don't know you, that we would love for them and pray for them that they might come to know you. Father, thank you for this story that reminds us that hatred is so evil and it can result in such terrible circumstances. And yet, Lord, you use this for good when they meant it for evil.